0: Oh, it's early morning and we're in the heart of bustling Soho on Dean Street at Quo Vadis. By we, I mean me and Mr Binks. I should just clarify that Mr Binks is not my boyfriend, but he is my English toy terrier. And we're here today to interview one of Europe's leading holistic vets, Lise Hansen. We'll be talking about her new book, the Complete Book of Cat and Dog Health. And we're also discussing itchy dogs and the immune system. I'm Anna Webb, and this is A Dog's Life. Hi, Lise, Welcome to A Dog's Life. You're over from Denmark. You are one of Europe's leading holistic vets. Um, explain a bit more why you've chosen to opt for alternative medicine rather than conventional medicine?
1: Well, I mean, I wouldn't be without my degree in conventional veterinary medicine, but i just like to add some tools to my toolbox, really, and be able to, to do more. Um, and, well, for a long time now, I've concentrated on homeopathic practice. I see referrals in homeopathy because I just find that it does what I need it to do. Um, but it all comes together. It's, it's just more tools to be able to help more patients it's interesting today we're going to be talking about itchy dogs yes a big problem probably probably really the biggest problem in small animal practice is allergic skin disease dogs that either get hot spots maybe frequently recurring hot spots or dogs that get recurring ear infections dogs that itch and itch and itch um, get you know inflamed irritated skin Um, sometimes it's concentrated on paws some dogs will just lick their paws until they're red and raw and walking hurts Um, but it all it's all the same thing it's all dogs that are allergic and the allergy for them obviously is in their skin allergic
0: skin disease is a huge problem it's interesting isn't it because the skin even in us humans is the biggest organ Mm. and what's interesting about the skin is that it's visible and you can touch it So unlike, say, you know, your liver or your kidneys or or your bladder (laughs) that are obviously internal and you can't see what's going on with them on a regular basis, skin it can be a great asset in a way in that it can monitor and express the dog's health visibly so that you're able perhaps to you know act more quickly than you could on a kidney for example that might be suffering from a bit of wear and tear you wouldn't know that necessarily um what do you think well that's true that's true
1: and sometimes it's you know it's it's in your face and and it drives people crazy as well i mean skin disease allergic skin disease you know Dogs, particularly that itch, are such a frustrating, it's such a frustrating condition. It's frustrating for the dogs, no doubt, but it's also incredibly frustrating for the owners because you can't sleep at night. You can't, you know, if your dog is itching, 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 licking, 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 scratching, 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 you can't ignore it. It's very much like you say, it's on the surface, it's it's in your face. But it's also very frustrating for the vet. I mean, as a vet, when you have, maybe you have a young dog, a puppy in for the first time, and it's, you know, its belly is pink, it's biting its paws, it's scratching its ears, wherever it manifests. Those are the, those are really heart sink patients because you know this is going to be an allergic problem. And as a conventional vet, you know that you can help to a certain extent, but you can't cure this. So you know that this is going to be a very long relationship. You know, this is going to be a lifelong problem and they, they really, really are the, the heart sink patients of small animal
0: veterinary practice. So it's a question, again, I guess, of the cause and the symptom. And conventionally, really, it's steroids, isn't it? And steroid creams, steroid injections that um, conventionally are used quite a lot. But why, ironically, is that counterintuitive on the basis that these skin issues are triggered by a problem, uh, an inefficiency or a compromised immune system?
1: Well, it's certainly a sign of, I mean, the immune system is there to to protect the individual. The immune system is there to sort out what's dangerous from what's not dangerous. You know, we are, all of us right now, we've got cancer cells, fungi, bacteria, viruses in us and on us and all around us. And we need our immune systems to to stop those from being allowed in and being allowed to to take hold. So we absolutely need a healthy immune system to stay healthy. If you have an allergy, and nobody knows why some individuals have allergies, we know there is a partly uh, a genetic component, Component. we know this for dogs and for people, that if the parents um, are known to have allergies, there's a higher likelihood that the, that the offspring will, but it's certainly not the full story. We don't understand why some individuals um, become allergic, but if you have an allergy, it means that your immune system is not able to tell what's okay from... What's a threat to you? So you start reacting to, I mean, the common triggers, the common allerg- allergens will be things like um, pollen, um, house dust mites, um, things that are in the environment around you. And a, 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 an allergic individual will
0: react to those. And in the case of allergic skin disease, they'll make you itch. So really, in your view, um, are allergies triggered by food? or more so by environmental stressors?
1: I don't know a lot about allergies in humans, but allergies in dogs are, most allergic dogs are atopics. And an atopic is someone who reacts to allerg- allergens in the environment, in the air around them. So most allergic dogs, I've never met, I mean, it would be so wonderful if you could, if you had an allergic patient and you could identify what that individual is reacting to and then remove that thing from their environment, thus curing the problem. That never, ever happens. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That is sadly my experience. Um, You can do allergy testing and try to find out what a dog is allergic to, but I have seen thousands of those, and they are all but identical. They all react to many things. They all, all react to a whole array of things, and they all react to flea saliva, Um, We used to call this flea allergies, but now we know. Now we call them atopics because fleas is just one of the many things that they react to. But they will react to flea saliva. They will react to house dust mites. They will react to storage mites often. uh, And to varying extents, they will react to pollen, grasses,
0: um, always things that you can't remove. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because conventionally, they do tend to lead you down the path of being allergic to a certain protein. Um, and of course, you know, you have diets now that are billed as being hypoallergenic. Explain, Lise, well, why I, that yes. really is quite a misnomer, particularly well, th- with the connection to storage mites.
1: Absolutely. I mean, try to Google um, dog allergy and food and you'll spend the rest of your life yes, uh, on the Internet. <laughs> absolutely. There's a lot of, of misunderstandings and there's a lot of um, I. Th- there are a few dogs. That react directly to food components. In my experience as a practicing vet, it's often very clear. I mean, if you if your dog eats the bread that was left out for the birds, or you know, mother-in-law's visiting and gives Does them a, a biscuit a under the table. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then the next day they have a hot spot or they have a, a raging ear infection, then it's it's very a case of a very clear cause and effect. That's quite rare but when it happens, the owners are usually already aware of it. Most dogs, I mean, certainly most dogs that present with chronic allergic problems that have been going on for ages, they've been through the whole mill already. They've tried various diets and they've concluded it makes no difference whatsoever. And that's certainly my experience that that goes for most cases. Often, if you go to the vet for the first time with an itchy dog and the vet thinks, oh no, this is turning out to, this is going to be a a long story of an allergic patient. The typical treatment is they'll give you something, maybe steroids, like you said, to break that itch cycle for now. Initially, they'll give you a short course of steroids. And then they'll very often also give you a bag of, of allergy food to take home. And somehow at the back of the owner's mind, very often, it's just stored that well, it sort of got better initially when we gave them that allergy food, but I'll bet you it's because they had steroids at the same time. And I can't think of many patients, if any, really, that were keeping them on the so, you know, so-called hypoallergenic foods or the allergy foods, dry food, prepared or sold in crazy amounts, particularly for dogs that, that scratch themselves. I can't think of dogs where that solved the problem. I I think I think the reason to be fair that there is this disproportionate focus on diet mm-hmm. when dogs itch is because if you have a dog that has a, that has a specific food allergy you can actually control it. That's the one situation where yes if that dog is allergic to chicken and you don't feed it chicken you have a
0: chance of doing something if it's allergic to anything in the environment there's not not much you can do about it sure but hypoallergenic foods are heavily processed let's face it and in the heavy processing technique of dry foods um they're all anything made dry any of the dry brands end up in great big bags in warehouses for months before they move to you know the resellers around the country and it's in that that part of their production where they're in these big bags in vacuous warehouses where storage mites will think oh this is great yeah. i've got a fantastic home here i've got billions of bags of dry food you know, i'm just going to live in these bags and 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 live on <laughs> says this the storage mites it says the storage <laughs> mites to the dry food so if you yeah, by what yeah. you're saying you know the the trigger to um, allergic reactions is more environmental. Then there's an irony there that these bags of hypoallergenic absolutely foods contain the storage mites that will actually be um yeah. you know promoting yeah. an allergic yeah. reaction, which is um,
1: I'm so, sure part of the reason why they're
0: often not very
1: helpful. I mean the hypoallergenic diets are based on the principle that partly they stick to. Um, one source of protein ideally a source of protein that's not commonly used in dog food right um and secondly the the components are hydrolyzed so they're kind of knocked into tiny bits uh, in an attempt to make them unrecognizable to the immune system um but as you say it's very often dry food and dry food any dry food will contain storage mites and storage mites is a very co- are a very common allergens. Um, I, find, I i think that the Situations where food makes a difference is often when someone goes away from dry altogether and feed either a home-cooked diet or a raw diet. So avoiding dried
0: well, may help. I agree. I mean, you are what you eat and so is your dog. And we're, we're learning that so much more now on a, on a human level with diseases like diabetes being at a crisis point, arthritis and heart disease now being... Conditions that you must see on the up. I was going to say a lot of that goes for dogs too. Yes, absolutely. And you know, dogs becoming diabetic in nature, a wolf would never be a diabetic. Well, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I think there, I mean, I think it's important to remain humble. There is so much we don't understand about diet, but the basic principles that human nutritionists will tell us eat unprocessed, fresh, organic, and varied. And then you look at the dry dog food, which is as far
0: from any of that that it can possibly get. It makes very little sense. Mm, No, well, absolutely. Now, sticking on the um, environmental aspects here. Interestingly, my miniature bull terrier who is at home today, who is named Prudence, she actually is from Germany. So to bring her in under the uh, pet's passport scheme. She had to have a rabies shot. I was aware of rabies as being, you know, a dead vaccine and a big vaccine, because let's face it, the only thing that is definitely, definitely going to kill you, both human and dog and cat and weasel, is actually rabies. So it's a heavy duty vaccine. And interestingly, we had terrible skin issues at Mm. first. Mm. She came up with these, I called them buncles, these these spots that weren't really spots, wasn't a rash. They were very individual, like little boils. Mm. And under the guidance of Barbara Jones at the Oakwood practice, we little by little resolved the issue and they, they've now thankfully gone. But she's four and a half and even last year she would still sprout a buncle, which I know having read The Amazing vaccine expert ron schultz's work that skin issues as a puppy are often related to vaccines mm. no absolutely i mean vaccine is another big area in terms of of well the
1: keeping the immune system healthy um we need vaccines like you say there are some some you know bad news diseases out there that we need to protect our animals against but we have been using vaccines um very incorrectly. And thank God the science is now available. The WSSVA World Small Animal Veterinary Association, uh, have printed guidelines. They're available at wsava.org uh, and they explain exactly how dogs and cats should be vaccinated. Sadly, it takes a while for this information to filter out into common practice and we are Still, in many places, over-vaccinating cats and dogs, and that is definitely one of the things that puts a, um, a, a strain on the immune system that that, you know, does them no good.
0: I mean, the WSAWSPA, uh, the yeah, WS, <laughs> they um they brought out their first vac- um they've got a vaccination guideline group. Mm. And their first set of uh, recommendations to the veterinary profession, a bit like the AA, saying to car drivers, look, don't drink and drive. It's really not a very smart idea. (laughs) Yet people still do. So that's the role, isn't it, of the WSAVA. But. Their guidelines, their first set of guidelines were only issued in 2007, which when you think we've been vaccinating dogs with the polyvalent combo booster jab since about, what, 1975? I wouldn't even know. I mean, for when I qualified as a vet, it was,
1: we were told that every dog and every cat ought to have a vaccine every year. These days, really, if you do it well, you can fully protect a dog by giving it one vaccine ever. If you don't travel, if you if you live in Europe and you travel, you need rabies every three years. But if we forget about that, certainly living in the UK, if you have a dog and you want to protect the dog against deadly diseases through vaccination, but you want to not give unnecessary shots, you can actually get away with giving one vaccine Ever and in many cases have that dog fully protected for the whole of its life to the benefit of a healthy immune system for sure.
0: But that's so interesting, isn't it? Because that actually goes um, contrary to what a lot of um, GP conventional vets will actually say to a new puppy owner coming in. And it's interesting as well because of regulations. Most breeders now responsible, say kennel club assured breeders. They do now, um, as part of an assurance scheme, give the puppy their first vaccine at eight weeks yeah and that's where we need
1: to talk about tighter testing because i mean there's a lot to be said there's a lot to say about vaccines but it is important to get this right and the science is absolutely there it's important to say that this is not a discussion this is not a situation where some vets say one thing and some vets say another thing the world's leading expert have spoken and they've laid out very very clear guidelines it's just that and i think it's just a, a general human thing, we're slow to adapt. This this information filters out into into general practice and it takes a frustratingly long time. Well, it's
0: taken um, I know, know, over 10
1: years. Uh, way over 10 years, yes. But the information is there, the science is there, the experts have spoken, so it's really up to the rest of us to follow what they're saying. And if your vet doesn't do this, you think you have to either find another vet or inform yourself so that you can go in there and, and be clear about what you want. Can I just say titer test? Yeah, Could I was just going to say let's like,
0: back and I know slightly yeah, no rush. I explain because people think oh, that's a weird word, titer test. Yes. Explain what you When test. you do a titer test, you
1: take a very small blood sample from the dog. Uh, you just need a drop of blood literally, uh, and you analyze this blood for antibodies against the three main diseases that every dog needs to be vaccinated against, parvovirus, distemper, and hepatitis. Um, and you get a clear answer Is this dog currently protected against these diseases? Yes or no? It's a yes or no answer. Very often the answer will come as a number, uh, but you, you, there's no degrees of protection. The, the way to interpret it is um, you, you're going to get a, a, the bottom line is going to be either my dog is protected and needs no further
0: vaccine, or my dog is not protected and needs a vaccine today. Yeah. Because when I had Molly, my first miniature bull terrier, titled, it was quite radical because this was in uh, 2008. Uh, She was six. And uh, my GP vet at the time was texting me, ringing me. You know, they were basically they were basically selling me fear that they were saying look, Molly is going to die. Anna, if you don't Mm -hmm. uh, give her a booster shot, because I'd only given her her two puppy shots. And I've never really liked vaccines myself. I mean, I am the sort of person that went to India without any vaccines myself, mm. you know, um, risk to benefit situation. So I dutifully took Molly in and to the practice. And I really, really said, look, I don't want to give her this shot. Um, so the vet then was actually really understanding, considering we are now talking, this was in 2008, only a year after the first um, WSAVA guidelines had actually been issued. So she said, you can do this thing called a titer test. And it was very expensive. Then the blood said to go to Edinburgh. And she said, but look, it's going to cost you whatever it cost me at the time. It's about 300 pounds. Um, and Anna, you know what, you're going to have to give her the, the injections. When the results come back, you know, because she's not going to be immune. This was her already preconceived idea. Okay, mm. so when Molly's results came back, and they then came back, either saying the the the, the, the serological immunity was high, medium, or low, all three in Molly's case were high. Mm. Now this was six years after she'd had her puppy shots. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize at the time how landmark her tighter test was going to become because currently, even now today, vets will tend to say, you know, that the vaccines will last for three years, which is better than a year. But there's, it's better than a year, but
1: it's just as, it's just as made up a figure. It's, it, it comes out of thin air.
0: Yes. Um, and I was proud of Molly's just going back there only because there we were, you know, um, six years after her puppy shot. So double, you know, what they they tend to claim. And her levels were high. And the vet in question was actually shocked. So it's quite, quite interesting. However, we're now in, in a world where tighter testing can be done in practice, yes. aren't we? So rather than going for your your annual booster shot, you could just go for an annual titer test. Yeah, the WSAVA suggests we do it every three years.
1: So you don't even need to do an annual titer test. What I would say about titer testing is that if your dog hasn't had one, it needs one. Um, And it is wrong. It is demonstrably wrong to ever vaccinate an adult dog without doing a titer test first. I would almost go as far as to say, If your vet doesn't do in-house titer testing, find a different vet. But maybe if you live in a very remote area and that's not an option, then travel for that specific purpose. You know, go to a veterinary clinic that offers the test in-house. It makes it way, way cheaper. And it also means that they are, it means they're fully informed because no vet who's fully informed wouldn't. (laughs) You know, I mean, you would, if you're fully informed, you will want to offer the in-house titer test. Uh, and you can advise properly on the basis of it. I still come across people who pay hundreds of pounds for these blood tests to be sent to far-off labs and the vet then gets the result back and doesn't really you know what to say on the basis of it. You need a vet who does an in-house tighter test. It's an exploding field.
0: I, mean, I hope so. I mean, and in London, yes, you can be titer tested. Anywhere you can be tighter tested. No, you can't. Not very easily in Buckinghamshire or in Shropshire. <laughs> I would say every day more practices take this tool on board but if if you're local
1: i mean if you what i would say to anybody who has a dog is to sit down and call the the, the five closest clinics to you and ask them if they do in-house titer testing and I mean, I've done talks about this to to dog groups sometimes, and and if they're all saying, "Well, our local vet doesn't do it," then we say, "Okay, well, you call them Monday, you call them Tuesday, you call them Wednesday, you call them Thursday," and after in you know, the next month they do offer this. The, the vets want to offer what the clients
0: want, and the clients need tighter testing. It's just what the current scientific advice is. So back, Anna,ing so you've taken on your your perfect puppy. It's already had a, a shot um, at eight weeks. Your advice would be to then have it tighter tested at 16 weeks there's different ways that you can do this i go into this in details in my book um
1: there's different ways you can do it the wsava recommends that you vaccinate puppies at 8 12 and 16 weeks weeks you don't have to give all three shots if tighter testing is available to you um a dog that is already positive cannot be vaccinated so you can tighter test until it goes negative and then you just give one shot. Um, a, a puppy only ever responds to one vaccine. The reason why we give two or three is because we don't know when each puppy is ready to be
0: vaccinated. And by that you mean when the maternal yeah, antibodies yeah, exactly. have worn off. Because yes. puppies are born with their mother's immunity. Yes. Yes. And the reason we typically vaccinate them at eight weeks and at
1: 12 weeks and at 16 weeks is that for each individual puppy, we don't know exactly when the mother's antibodies are gone so that the puppy is ready to be vaccinated. But what we do know, and this is really the only thing, I mean, this is the thing to hold on to. What we do know is that when a puppy has been vaccinated and has responded to that vaccination in almost all all cases, the WSA report says 98%, that puppy will be protected for life. So there is booster is an, it's not a term that we should be using. The vaccine doesn't need boosting. Once the puppy has responded, there's every reason to believe that it'll be protected for the rest of its life. But for now, the recommendation is that every three years you do a blood test just to check that that protection still holds. No, oh,
0: Lise, that's so interesting. Just really quickly, because this is something I've heard and read about. So oh, your view on this would be interesting. You know, my little Mister Binks sat over there. He's an English toy terrier, and he weighs uh, about four point eight kilos. So he's yeah, a very small dog. However, if I were to vaccinate him, would the vaccine be a size for Mister Binks, or you know, do are vaccines made in small, medium, and large? No,
1: no. It is believed that um, the amount that, that it needs to induce an immune response is not um, doesn't change with size. No, so a, a, tiny, a tiny, tiny two-hour puppy will get the same vaccine that you'll give to a. An Irish that <laughs> yes. yeah yeah weighs more than 100 kilos so no a vaccine is a is a vaccine we see more problems with small dogs we see more problems when many vaccines are administered at the same time as well um which is another reason if you have a dog if you have a puppy that needs the core vaccines obviously but maybe also needs to travel like you said before so needs a rabies vaccine don't give them at the same time spread them out as much as you possibly can to give the immune system a
0: chance to recover from one load before you before you give the the next. In fact, you can actually um, do the the rabies shot in two stages, two weeks apart, can't you? So you're actually minimising the initial shock to the body.
1: I think the main thing is just you want to give it, you don't want to give it, you don't want to say, oh, well, we're here now, let's add it all together you want to give the core vaccines and then you want to wait for as long as you possibly can uh obviously depending on when the dog has to travel uh so that you you don't give it ideally weeks and weeks and weeks after you've given the other ones so that you don't the, the point is not to try and burden the immune system too much
0: that's right and um, that the key i guess to holistic health lees is to keep the toxin load down yeah
1: yeah no absolutely you want to i mean we're talking about we started out talking about itchy dogs and allergies and i would say uh it's all about trying to Trying to help them have a healthy immune system. And there are lots of factors we can't control, um, but we can certainly not vaccinate them more than they need. You know, let's vaccinate according to the current uh, recommendations Absolutely. and not burden their immune system that way. Let's give them a healthy diet. Let's try to minimize the toxins that we give them in terms of parasite control. I think the general principle that we were talking about with titer testing of of testing before you treat can also be used in many cases in terms of parasite control. Instead of giving your dog a worm on a regular basis, send a stool sample off on a regular basis to see if they've actually got worms.
0: I know, and um, that's so easy to do. And people yeah. go, oh, well, I can't pick up three days worth of my dog's poo and put it in a pot and send it off. But actually, once well, you get over pick it... you're all the poo anyway. Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Lise, this is all in your book, isn't it? The complete yes. book of cat and dog health. Um, we're running out of time but thank you so much for joining um, me today for a dog's it's life a pleasure. and i really hope perhaps we can reconvene because i really would love to talk at another point about neutering yeah absolutely lots to say there too thank you <laughs> thank you so that's our show mr Binks. what did you think Yes, what Lise had to say about itchy dogs, it certainly is thought-provoking. Thank you for listening, and I really hope you've found it fun and enlightening. If you have, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows. And while you're there, go on, give us a five-star review. It really will help other dog lovers find us. Thank you also to Mike Hansen, to Cookie, and to Sophie Bradley for all of your help. And thanks to you, Mr Binks. Well, just for being yourself. What's that? Oh yes, there'll be another episode of A Dog's Life coming very soon. Why not subscribe now, and then you'll never miss a show. Bye for now. A Dog's Life is a Pod People production. Pod People.